please open your Bibles to Exodus chapter 3. We are going to have a long text today. If you, uh, if you don't have a Bible with you and you need the screen, there's a few open chairs over here. But we're going to be going from chapter 3, 1 all the way through chapter 417. You heard me correctly. 3, 1 through 417, deal with it. Um, so it's going to be hard uh, if you're not looking at a text. It's going to be hard to stay, to stay with me. Uh, but let's pray before we begin. God, I, I pray that as we open your word this morning, that it would be far more than simply text on a page. That through the ministry of the Holy Spirit, you would make it alive. That it would find places within us that are discouraged and encourage us. That it would find locked parts of our hearts that maybe we're not even aware of and would open them to the light of day. Be with us now. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, I think we all know the name Harry Truman, right? We've all heard of Harry Truman. He was a U.S. president. Uh, you may not know much of his story, though. He was a genuine Missouri farm boy. Like, that's how he grew up. He's not from one of these wealthy, privileged families. Missouri farm boy, for real. Went and fought in the First World War as an NCO, um, and he turned out to have a knack for leading small units, right? This is, I mean, that, that's worthy service, of course, but no indications of a future president. But when he went back to Missouri after the war, he opened a hat shop. Also doesn't prepare you to be president. Literally, the dude owned a hat shop. Farming, small unit leader, hat shop. And then he got involved in local politics in his small town uh, for, for the Democratic Party. And then he was selected as FDR's running mate for his fourth term. That's literally the trajectory. There was no in-between. He went from hat shop owner involved in small politics to running with FDR for the fourth term. And, of course, they won. Now, it must be said he had no experience he was completely inadequate for the job, but he was also paired with maybe the most august uh, leader uh, of that, that part of the century anyway, right? Four-termer, uh, led, led the nation out of the Great Depression, FDR, and, and, through, and this was mid-World War II. 86 days into their term, Harry Truman gets a phone call in the middle of the night. And someone on the other line says, we need you to come to the White House now. So Harry Truman, without a security detail, not even a car, runs through Washington, D.C. by himself to the White House. No joke. Can't, couldn't imagine that today. Run there. How could I run there? That's not how our vice president sounds, but just. <laughs> or any vice president for that matter. But anyway, he, 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 you know, out of breath, gets to the White House. He's shown into the study of the First Lady, Eleanor Roosevelt. And Eleanor Roosevelt comes out. Now, she was a good bit taller than him. Like, she was my height. He was about Tom Cruise's height. And she comes up to him and says, Harry, the president has suffered a stroke and died. And, and Harry Truman starts crying and, and trying to console Eleanor Roosevelt. He's like, I'm, I'm so sorry, is there anything I can do for you? Eleanor Roosevelt takes her big banana bunch hand, puts it on his shoulder, 
and says, no, Harry, is there anything we can do for you? And in that moment, it hit Harry Truman, the hat store owner from Missouri, that he was now president of the United States in 1944 in the most destructive part of World War II. And he describes in his memoir a feeling like weight landing on his shoulders, and he just collapsed down onto a couch, and he put his head in his hands, and he started weeping, saying, I can't. I can't do this. I'm not a big enough man. Sometimes our first response to a challenging calling is we can't. We, we don't feel up to it. Fear kicks in. Fear of failure, fear of loss, fear of humiliation. There's a problem here. God's callings are always challenging. Now I'm sure that someone can tell me about a calling that wasn't challenging. God called me to play Call of Duty till 4 a.m. It was a little challenging, but I stayed up. All right. But really, I've never heard of God calling someone to comfort or to ease. God calls to challenging things. And so when we hear the call of God, almost always our first response is, I don't know that I could do that. I don't think that I'm equipped for that. I don't think that I'm the person for that. The, the fear of loss the fear of failure. I, I experienced that when I was first called to be a pastor. I was, uh, I was just a member of a church. We, we were, Sharon and I were members of a church plant, and it became clear, you know, some of the members, the elders, the, uh, uh, the pastor were all saying, hey, we, we think that in our denomination you have to go to seminary, right, to be a pastor. We think you should go to seminary and be a pastor. My immediate answer was, no way. Can't do that. They're like, well, Why? I, I mean, I had no shortage of reasons. I was like, well, I'm not that smart, first off. Grad school doesn't seem like it would be my thing. I'm also not very nice. Pastors are supposed to be nice. And by the way, I didn't go to college. Like, like not I didn't finish college. I didn't go. I, I'm supposed to go get a master's degree? Is that even possible? I can't do that. And I literally said this. I, I can't go to seminary because I can't type. Don't laugh at me, guys. This is my pain I'm sharing with. No. <laughs> I, I, I literally didn't own a computer until I went to seminary in 2008. And that was borrowing my wife's computer. This is literally how I typed. I was like, a 10-page paper? <laughs> I'll be retirement age by the time I finish my first one. That doesn't work. <laughs> right? And then I was like, well, we don't have money to go. And, and really, it was like, kept on running out of reasons why not, and it came down to it that we were going to have to sell our house and, and quit our jobs and, and move, to, move to attend seminary, and it, there was a gigantic fear of failure because I, without a college degree, I was starting on academic probation. If I got below a C in my first semester, that's it, we're done, I flunk out. It was terrifying. And I said, I don't think that this is for me. And I'm sure that you guys... Maybe it's not something like that. Maybe it's just being called to repentance. And you've got all kinds of reasons why you can't. 
Maybe it's being called to Christ himself into relationship with God, and you've got all kinds of reasons why you can't. It's scary. There's loss involved. There's fear involved. So what do we do? When we hear that challenging call, and our first response is, I can't. I'm not big enough. I don't have what it takes. Do we just, you know, woman up and do it? Do we just convince ourselves until, you know, we've kind of like deluded ourselves into thinking we can? Or, or my personal favorite, fake it and act like we can? Well, when we look at Exodus chapter 3, Moses receives a challenging call from God. Now, we, I, I preached, last time I preached, I preached from the first eight verses. We're going to continue through. So just to get setting, look with me uh, at chapter 3, verse 1. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses, and he said, here I am. Then he said, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you were standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. So try and picture it. When we encounter a narrative, a story in the scriptures, the best way to interpret it is to try and imagine it in your mind's eye. So here's Moses, used to live in Egypt for 40 years. He's been a herder, a sheep herder in, uh, in Midian, which is a very beige place. And he, uh, he's going up into the highlands where there's reliably water. It's him, sheep, staff, rocks, dirt. That's it. Burning bush. This is like you know, the drive-in movie of the ancient world. There's a bush on fire. Let's go check it out. Oh, that bush isn't being consumed. This is, this is like the most exciting thing probably of his month. And, um, and so he encounters God there. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings. And I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey. Now, the, the whole milk and honey thing, I think many of us have heard that. So it's, it's a quick way of saying, um, you know, milk, there's enough grassland there to graze animals so they give milk, and there's flowers there that provide honey. So it's a way to describe a nice place that isn't so beige. A land flowing with milk and honey to the place of the ites, and now behold... The cry of the people of Israel, you don't need me to read all that, has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I, okay, God's like, I'm going to rescue them. And Moses is like, interesting, 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 and now here it comes. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, okay, let's pause right there. Okay, so the type of text we have here, this is a conversation. It's not only a divine speech. When God speaks, pay special attention, but it's a conversation with somebody. This is unusual. So we're going to pay attention in a conversation text 
about how does the, each person respond, right? That, that's what we want to pay attention to. So God says to Moses, I'm calling you to deliver my people. This is a big deal. And what does Moses say? What's his first response? Moses, oh wait, back up, verse 10, right? 11, I've got my place again. But Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? This is a fair point, okay? His name is Mud in Egypt, right? He left with the royal court seeking his life. This is a legitimate point. He doesn't really have standing there. God said in verse 12, but I will be with you, and this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. He says, this is, this is what's going to give you confidence, Moses, that this is all going to work. He says, when you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Here's how you know it's going to work. This will give you confidence, because you're going to see it's going to work. <laughs> He's like, how do you know that I'm going to use you to bring the people out to this mountain? Well, when you get to this mountain, you'll see. Okay, that takes faith right there, doesn't it? Okay, so, so God's answer to Moses, Moses' legitimate apprehension is what? Trust me, right? Just trust me. Then Moses said to God, here's another answer, pay attention. If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? Also a legitimate question. We're talking about ancient pagans here. If you say God sent me, they would say, which God? Okay, God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Now, this is, of course, a famous uh, verse where God refers to himself as I am who I am. And, of course, Jesus applies this to himself uh, in, a, in a conversation with the Pharisees, claiming divinity to himself. Um, is anybody at all interested in, in this discussion of the, the I am thing? Jess gives me a thumb up. Should I? Okay, okay, we're interested. Okay, this is going to be completely disappointing. Because here's the thing. I've heard people honk on for 40 minutes about the meaning of I am who I am. Uh, scholars are divided. Right? The, the best scholars say, hey, there's a lot of possibilities. You could actually translate it a number of different ways. It's, it, it could be, I will be who I will be. That would actually be a more accurate translation given the, the Hebrew verb tenses. And it could be, I am who I am. Meaning, something like, I'm consistent of character. I'm me, that's who. I'm a me God. You want to know what kind of God? I'm me. Okay, it could be emphasizing like his self-sufficient self existence. I'm the one who exists. It could be emphasizing just the fact that he is the one true God, saying I'm the God who actually is. Which one is it? I don't know. And yeah, you're all super disappointed in me right now, but I'm being honest with you. Anyone who says that they are certain about what God means by this, I have questions. But... The next thing he says is far clearer. Verse 15. God also said to Moses, Say this to the people of Israel, Yahweh, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered 
throughout all generations. So uh, the reason I said Yahweh when I came across uh, this right here is because you'll see, see how that's all caps? Uh, the Hebrew word there is not the word for Lord, Adonai. It is God's personal covenant name, Yahweh. And um, some people want to say, well, what does it mean, right? It, it, it doesn't mean anything but God in the same way that my name, Matthew, means gift from God, but Matt Morjinsky means me and only me. It's not a separate meaning. Does that make sense, right? So uh, there is just an old tradition of you don't translate the name. You put Adonai instead, and, and so in English translations, they let you know that the divine name is there uh, with, with the all caps. Fun fact. So you know when I say Yahweh, it's because that is, uh, that's the, the word behind there. But what, what, who does he say he is? How does he identify himself? It's by saying, hey, you've heard of Abraham, your ancestor, Isaac and Jacob. The God who got the whole Israelite thing started. I'm that God. Okay? Now that is much clearer than the I am who I am. Where was I? Oh, yeah, verse 16. Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, The Lord, Yahweh, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob, has appeared to me, saying, I have observed you and what has been done to you in Egypt. And I promise that I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the ites, and they will listen to your voice. You and the elders of Israel shall go to the king of Egypt and say to him, Yahweh, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us, and now please let us go three days journey into the wilderness, that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. After that, he will let you go. And I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians, and when you go, you shall not go empty." But each woman shall ask of her neighbor and any woman who lives in her house for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. You shall put them on your sons and on your daughters, so you shall plunder the Egyptians. Okay, so God's answer to Moses saying, hey, who sent me? Hey, I'm the God who got this whole thing started. I'm the God who's going to deliver uh, my people out of Egypt. So much so, like he tells him the entire plot of, of Exodus that's coming, right? Like, Pharaoh's not going to want to let you go, but I'm going to make him let you go. And then you're going to go up to Egyptian women and say, hey, can we have your jewelry, please? And they're going to say, yes, we owe it to you for years and years of slavery. Run the jewels, right? I'm wearing the shirt. I didn't even realize that. Run the jewels. <laughs> run them, run them. Um. <laughs> so God tells him who he is reveals his name to him, tells him the whole thing. Should Moses be starting to buck up a little here? Hey, okay, okay, the God who, who got this whole thing started is going to send me and, and deliver his people. Let's look at how he responds now in chapter 4, verse 1. Then Moses answered, But behold, they will not believe me or listen to my voice, for they will say, Yahweh did not appear to you. So it's uh, not going to work, God. Yahweh said to him, what is that in your hand? He said, a staff. And he said, and he said, throw it on the ground. So he threw it on the ground, and it became a serpent, and Moses ran from it. Now, some commentators are like, 
We're seeing Moses' cowardice here. He's run, uh, the snake appeared. I'm running. I feel like that's rational, right? Like, like the bravest person in the world. Oh, yo, fight us, cobra. <laughs> Things like a killing machine. What are you, like a graphic designer? But the Lord said to Moses, put out, put out your hand and catch it by the tail. So he put it out of his hand and caught it, and it became a staff. And so he tells him another, a couple of other signs. And he tells him, look, when you go, and people say, how do we know that, that Yahweh sent you? You're going to do these signs, and then the people are going to believe you. Now let's look at how Moses, okay, okay, saw some genuine miracles here. Moses is going to start believing, right? Look at verse 10. But Moses said to the Lord, Oh, my Lord, I am not eloquent, either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and of tongue. It's like, you don't want me in the talking role. I'm not a good talker, God. Is this starting to sound thinner? Right? He started out with some pretty legit, I don't have any standing with Pharaoh. Well, the people really listen to me, and now he's like, I'm not a good talker. Yeah, cool trick with the snake and the staff, but me and talking don't get along. But the Lord said, Yahweh said to him, who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, Yahweh? Now therefore go, I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall speak. Totally reasonable. Seems like a good answer to Moses' question, doesn't it? Look at Moses' answer in verse 13. But he said, oh my Lord, Please send someone else. That's a polite refusal. I'm not going. Then the anger of Yahweh was kindled against Moses. This usually doesn't go well. And he said, Is there not Aaron, your brother, the Levite? I know that he can speak well. Behold, he is coming out to meet you, and when he sees you, he will be glad in his heart. You shall speak to him and put the words in his mouth. And I will be with your mouth and with his mouth and will teach you both what to do. He shall speak for you to the people. He shall be your mouth. You shall be as God to him. And take in your hand this staff with which you are to do the signs. It's like, okay, Moses, now you're like, like, I don't even want to go. Uh, fine, I won't send just you. I'll send your brother and you. I'll be with his mouth. I'll be with your mouth. I'm with all the mouths. All right, any more concerns, buddy? So what is, what is Moses' answer every time? Legitimate concerns, reasons why he can't, and then just, please don't send me. What is God's answer every time? Even in his anger is what? I'm with you. If I call you, I'm with you. When we say I can't to God's calling, God says I am with you. It is perfectly reasonable to, to hear God's call and say, well, that seems a little much. Yeah, totally. But we can't forget that we are not on our own. We're not left to our own power and devices. That we've actually been providentially, through, through God's hand, raised up for a call. Empowered for the call. In fact, God takes responsibility for the call. Right? He isn't saying, hey, see if you can make this happen, Moses. He's saying, I'm going to do it. I'm going to use you. When we say I can't to God's call, God says, I am with you. 
Now, does this apply to everything, right? Like, like, hey, I'm afraid to jump out of a plane. It's okay. God says he's with you. No, he's not. You're on your own there, right? Unless for some ridiculous reason you're called to jump out of a plane. I, I'm open to it, but no. <laughs> no, it's just, just when, when God calls. Now, a, a fair question would be, who does God call? And the answer is, everyone to multiple things. And all of them require risk. All of them, you, you, you can, there's going to be a fear of loss, and there's going to be a fear of failure. First of all, all of us are called to relationship with him through Jesus. And for some of us, right off the bat, we're like, yeah, I'm not sure I'm real cut out for that. You know, I, I wouldn't be like a good Christian, <laughs> right? Like none of us are, by the way. But we're aware. If we understand what it means to be called to God and we hear the call of God, there's a, there's a, a very real sense in which we are dying to everything. There's, there's, there's understandable fear there. There's understandable fear that we'll fail at it. Like, I won't be able to keep up, right? Like, just, just so you know, uh, with that call in particular, it is God's hand that keeps us, not us that hold on to God. We are all called to be part of building Christ's kingdom, right? To be used by God, with our spiritual gifts, with our, our resources, with our talents, with our, our families, or whatever, to be part of, of building Christ's kingdom. And again, when we hear those calls, we're like, really? A pay cut? I don't know. I don't know if I could take that loss. Really? Me? You want me to do that, Lord? We're all called to share the love of Christ. And that's scary. All sorts of rejection and humiliation possible there. We're all called to repent of our sin. And for some of you, that's like, oh, of course. Yeah, no problem. I'll go do that when I get home. For others, for others, there's like closets in your soul that you keep locked. And you don't even admit this thing to yourself. And to respond to God's call to open the door to him and give him what's inside that closet, that scares you to death. And you, you fear that you don't have the courage to do it. You fear that if, if you do try and repent of this particular sin, you say, God, please clean out this closet. It's okay. You fear that you're going you're gonna to relapse, that you'll fail. We're all called a church community, and that's scary for some of us. There's some of you listening or watching online who are like, oh, yeah, yeah, no, I like it on TV. I'm not so sure about being there, right? It's, it's frightening. There's a, a sense of risk, of of possible rejection of not living up to community standards and what have you. And if I just talked about you, 
God says to you, as you say, I can't to his call, he says, but I am with you. He's going to give you the ability. He's been leading you to this call. Now, other calls, some of us are called to marriage. Some of us are married and called to marriage. Some of us aren't married yet and called to marriage. And that, let me tell you, comes with a whole set of fear of failure and fear of loss, doesn't it? Some of you are contemplating marriage. Some of you are contemplating getting out of a marriage. And sometimes God's call to marriage can be hard at first, right? If you're, if you're in a difficult patch and it seems a lot easier to get out, the hard obedience that God calls us to. Now, there are circumstances under which tragically a marriage has to be dissolved, but, but God will empower you to be faithful to that calling. A lot of us are called to be parents. Like, talk about fear of failure there. I don't know anybody who's not a narcissist who, when they found out they were going to have a kid, wasn't afraid of screwing up. But to all of us who feel afraid of that, who feel like you can't do it, God says, I've called you to it. I'm with you in it. God's going to empower you. Now, there are also more specific callings. Your calling may have to do with your career. And I don't mean like in church career, all right? A lot of people, when they hear calling of God, it's like, oh, great, I have to go be a missionary or a pastor. No, probably not, okay? Instead, you're calling as a teacher, as a coder, as a construction worker, as a what have you. Right? Like that can be a calling from God as well. Something that God will empower you for. Some of you guys have very difficult careers. And, and you, may be, you may be even contemplating a change in job or career that has you scared. Maybe that's God's call. Not for certain, but possibly. Right? And, and, and it may require risk. And it may require you know, you having to, to work through fear of failure. It may require difficult things like going back to school or what have you. When we, when we hear it, we may say, I can't. I'm not built for that. I'm not strong enough. I'm not smart enough. I, I, I'm not able to do that. And God says, yeah, that's all true, but I'm with you. Some callings are within the church. Some of you are called to, uh, to volunteer ministry within the church. Some of you guys are going to be called to be officers in the church. Some of you guys may be called to seminary and being a pastor and that sort of thing. And if you are not a narcissist, again, narcissists have a huge advantage here because they're like, build God's kingdom. Yeah, I can do that. That's, that's not a problem. <laughs> I'm ready, Right? For the rest of us, there's a great deal of fear there. But to those of us who say, I can't, when we hear God's call, God says, I am with you. Now, discerning God's calling is not what this sermon is really about. I will offer this. I have done this with some of you, and, uh, and, and it, it can be helpful. Is we meet up. And you want to talk about your callings in life and how to discern God's voice and where he's calling you, I am happy 
uh, to eat a croissant that you buy me. That is always a condition. And, uh, and, and talk about it. I, I really am genuinely offering that if, if for anybody who would like to do that. We are all called. We will all be used by God in one way or another. We all have multiple callings on our lives, and they require courage. God's callings are never without challenge. They require faith. They require risk. They might require difficult change or, 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 or admitting difficult things. We're going to feel too small for it. We're going to feel like we can't do it. But when we say, I can't, to God's call, God says, I'm with you. Now, you guys all know the name Hannibal, either from uh, Silence of the Lambs or uh, the A-Team. But the reason that the, the name Hannibal rings throughout history is because he was probably the greatest military genius of the ancient world. Anybody heard of that Hannibal from North Africa? Yeah. He's a really interesting dude, and, and the reason that he's in the history books is because he nearly overthrew Rome, when Rome was kind of rising to the height of its power. And he did the audacious thing, first of all, of invading through the Alps. He famously did that, took elephants through the Alps. That's Hannibal. Okay? And then he mopped the floor with a couple of Roman armies up there, a couple big battles, like disasters for Rome. And, and the one that we remember him for was when Rome... It was always said that when Rome was most to be feared was when they were afraid. So after losing those two battles to Hannibal, they fielded the largest army of the entire ancient world. Like, like 5,000 guys on either side would have been a big battle. Rome put together an army of 80,000 legionaries to go and destroy Hannibal once and for all. Hannibal had about 20,000 guys. And a lot of those were just recruits from the north of Italy who hated Rome, but, but, you know, we're, we're forced to be part of it. And so they were kind of raw. Here was Hannibal's plan. He correctly assumed that the Romans would take an aggressive tactic of like, like a, a tight formation that was really deep, like a battering ram, and just bash them through the middle. That's Roman style, right? Punch you in the mouth, see if you're still standing. Hannibal was counting on this. And so his plan was this. It was really genius. He was going to have his worst troops, those new recruits from northern Italy, in the middle, right? So you have middle and wings, left wing, right wing. And he was going to put his weakest troops in the middle, which was not what you do, and his, his crack troops, his best veteran troops on the wings. And he was going to let that battering ram, you know, and it was, it, I mean, massive, 80,000 dude battering ram. He was going to let it contact his middle. And the key was they can't run away but they're supposed to back up. They're supposed to fight and back up slowly, right? And back up, back up, back up, back up. And as they back up, the wings start moving forward. And so this aggressive tactic, it's like judo, right? Using their own aggression against them. And then he, he, he was going to pull off. And he did what was called a double envelopment, a pincer movement. He encircled them. And it, even today, but especially back then, encirclement is game over, right? And so how do you beat 80,000 guys with 20,000 guys? That's how. Now, did you notice something odd about that plan? Your most green troops are in the middle. Your weakest point is in the middle. And what they're supposed to do is stand up to the 80,000 person, uh, you know, of, of vicious killers in their armor. It was, you know, they did precision marching. It was said they would shake the ground when they walked. You're supposed to not run away. Any of you able to stand there? 
Like, that seems like a tall order, doesn't it? I mean, what's going through your mind, if anything? Probably the point of a spear. <laughs> Sometime that day is what you're afraid of. So how do you not run away? How did Hannibal get these guys to stand there, to actually just give ground and pull off this incredible victory? You know what he did? You know where he put himself and his guard? Right there. Right in the middle. With them. Saying to them, yes, you're called to something difficult, but I'm with you. When we say, I can't, to God's calling, we look and we see that God is right there with us. He says, I am with you, when we say, I can't. Please pray with me. God, I pray that you would give us the courage to hear the difficult callings that you have on our lives. Whether it's something that requires sacrifice, whether it's something that requires loss or risk, or humility, or laying down something that we find it difficult to lay down. I pray that along with that difficult calling, we would hear your voice louder than all saying, I am with you. Be with us now. In Jesus' name, amen.